Hello, this is the Surviving Healthcare Podcast, and I have my great friend and colleague, Margaret Aranda, to tell us about her uh, adventures in California healthcare and her career and so on. And so it's quite a story, and I'll let her go have at it. Um, tell us first about your uh, professional background, Margaret. It's quite impressive. It eclipses mine by a great deal. Thank you. Well, you know, I was never the smartest one in the class, but I grew up as a little mom to six siblings. So I cooked and cleaned and did everything. By the time I was 13, I made my first Thanksgiving dinner. So I grew up with a lot of common sense and a, a very strong work ethic. So I think that helped me a lot uh, to excel in my clinicals and the academic was I had to study hard. I didn't have a photographic memory like so many doctors in our medical school classes, right? But um, I grad I got accepted to Oral Roberts University Medical School, and then I, uh, when it closed down, I transferred to USC. So I graduated USC Medical School, and then did internship there, including two rotations in the jail ward. Uh, and then I did anesthesia my first couple of years. Transferred out, completed anesthesia residency at Stanford, and then they liked me. So I stayed and I liked them. So I stayed on for a critical care fellowship as one of three in the country who competed for the positions. Then my first job was as a attending assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania. I ended up being in three departments. I wrote 3 million in NIH grants and uh, worked on collaborative research with Johannes Gutenberg University in Mainz, Germany. And then I was chief of uh, the Department of Anesthesiology at the Philadelphia VA during 9-11. Wow. After that, my dad got Alzheimer's. So I came back to California as UCLA faculty and director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit as a staff anesthesiologist at the West Los Angeles VA. Then, as you know, I, my daughter and I were in a tragic car accident. I spelt, spent 12 years bedridden with a traumatic brain injury, unable to walk or talk. I had dysautonomia very severely. I could not stand up without fainting. Nobody knew what it was, so they, the doctors thought I was pretending. I had a near-death experience, and God let me come back, uh, even though he gave me permission to go into that, that cloud in the sky uh, to heaven. So... Um, then I came back uh, to inherit a pain clinic. I assumed uh, an existing pain clinic with patients already on a lot of different high dose medications. I tapered everybody down over three to four years. And also during the last three years was extremely grateful that I learned how to use ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine and polypharmacy to save with zero deaths over 2,500 patients. And uh, then I got, in my opinion, I got targeted by the Medical Board of California. Of course. Um, so were you actually unconscious for all those years? How many, How do you have memories of the whole thing or how did it work? He, uh, I was never unconscious. I never hit my head. So the doctors were reluctant to give me a, a diagnosis of traumatic brain injury, which is why I wrote the rebel patient book that goes over how to fight for your diagnosis and get the proper treatment and how to use the medical system to get what you know you deserve, which is a chance to save your own life if that's what it takes. So, uh, so I was basically bedridden uh, at my worst. I was unable to even say the word the 
and I could not stand up. I went to brain rehab for a month at Northridge Hospital Brain Rehab. And it was the, uh, you know, so they literally had to teach me how to brush my teeth. And I went through six courses of speech therapy before I could say the word the. And I, I remember looking at her mouth and her lips and like, where do you put everything? How do you breathe? So God really blessed me. I ended up learning remembering everything I ever learned in medical school. And um, God blessed me with the ability to inherit this big population of pain patients who were on a lot of medications. Some of them I had never heard of like acetazolamide, et cetera. There were not anesthesia drugs we use in the operating room. Uh, so it was a, a prelude to what we all as physicians had to learn when COVID came around because we had to start using a lot of drugs that none of us had ever used like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. But as an anesthesiologist, I was a great shoe in for that because that's that was my job to give drugs I had never used before, watch what happened, become comfortable with it, and then become extremely proficient at it. What, what woke you up to the COVID frauds? The first thing that woke me up was that, honestly, uh, the vaccines came out too fast, but when they did come out, they selected the first population to be the doctors and nurses on the front lines in the hospital. I'm like, why would you want to test? Basically, that's what you're doing with something experimental. Uh, a brand new vaccine, on the very workforce that is slated to help the entire population. Yeah, I, I had the similar experience. I'd been researching Butchered by Healthcare, which is my a medical corruption book. And I, I understood that the uh, anything that was developed that rapidly was fraudulent. And so uh, my, my wife and I, uh, we were stuck in a foreign country, but um, we uh, immediately said we were never going to get vaccinated for for this thing. And uh, and my wife has not taken any vaccines in her adult life because she she hasn't even taken a flu vaccine, which I regarded as harmless, uh, but lately discovered that it wasn't. And especially with the new mRNA RNA technology they're putting in flu vaccines, it's it's anything but harmless. So um, so that's our our story about the beginning of my uh, waking up. So um, how did your daughter have a uh, uh, injury in the accident or she did pretty well? Thank you. She was two years old. She was sitting in the back seat with the puppy in a crate. I had tightened her belt really tight, just serendipitously or the voice of the Holy Spirit before I left that day to go drive in the car. We were visiting my dad who had Alzheimer's in a facility. We were driving down Malibu Canyon uh, towards Pacific Coast Highway. So it happened actually right in front of Pepperdine University. A lady just T-boned us. She leaned over to get something off the ground and then uh, lost control of her car. She pressed the gas, never pressed her brakes at all. She hit us about 90 miles an hour in a suburban. She had a little two-seater MG convertible. So she spun us around in a complete circle and jumped us over to face oncoming traffic. That's how hard she hit us. And she totaled a truck behind us and totaled wow. her car, of course. So my daughter was perfectly fine. She had been looking down at a little leap pad that she had. She was only two, but she was all into all that stuff. So 
somehow God made it so that her brain and her spinal cord were protected. And she, the only thing she really suffered was the loss of her mom, the way she knew her. And she's a nurse now. She's 21. She turns 21 in August. Did, so she's yeah. seen a lot. Um, now you had some sort of financial support during your, uh, your time. I recall your, your period where you were incapacitated. I had long-term care insurance, so that paid for a full-time caregiver 24-7. We bought one of the best policies that was available at the time around 2000 or so, 2001. And because my dad had Alzheimer's, my ex-husband at the time and I were concerned that I would get it too. So we bought the best. You can't even buy that policy anymore. Uh, but yeah, they paid for a full time, had it not been for a full time caregiver, even though there were a lot of caveats with that situation, uh, they stole from me. And, you know, it was it was a horrifying experience to depend on another human being for everything. But they did pay them for those 12 years that I was fully disabled. And I'm grateful for that. So you just had one person or you turned over these people? Well, I had one person helping me all the time yeah, and yeah. They, were, they were rotating. Sometimes I had two, but fortunately at least one of them could stay with me 24 seven for maybe two or three days at a time. And you had to do this by yourself. You didn't have anybody who was a advocate. No, I didn't have an advocate. It was actually my idea to call the insurance company and ask them if my disability was covered. They were kind of funny in the beginning. They didn't want to pay. Uh, because they, they, I would say, well, I can't do anything. I can't even take a shower. I can't even stand up in the shower. I, I'll faint. They're like, well, have you tried? I'm like, yes. And then I turn gray. Do you want me to hit my head and have another head injury on top of this? Like, no, I'm not going to do that. Like go back and bump it up to a supervisor. So yeah, I even had to advocate for myself that way. And, and my ex-husband at the time was, I would say he was extremely supportive for the first six months maybe. And then after that, uh, wasn't. Wow. Um, so your verbal abilities were intact. You just couldn't get up. Uh, I had a, a severe expressive aphasia. So I knew what I wanted to say, but I couldn't speak. I couldn't make the words come out. I, I would know what it would start with, what letter it started with, or how many syllables it had, but I, I couldn't get it out of my brain. From my brain to my mouth, it was impossible. And then over the years, it gradually got better, especially with the speech therapy. But even at that, in the beginning, when I was learning how to speak, my brain was running faster than my mouth. So, I, and I would stumble over my words if I said them too fast, or if I had like a stream that was too fast. So I had to learn to slow down my brain and have it keep pace with my mouth. And then obviously now you can't shut me up. So, so it got better. Uh, so you were able to write, eventually write a couple of books during your dis period of disability. Is that correct? I wrote six books while I was sick in bed. The first book is my No More Tears book that discusses my near-death experience and what it felt like to be a doctor who was mistreated by the medical profession and severely disabled without having any 
uh, validation until I saw one cardiologist who was able to diagnose me with a dysautonomia, but even, yeah, the traumatic brain injury, they didn't want to give me that diagnosis for a long time. It was a very haphazardly written book. It was, I was sick and tired of it by the time I was done. I never wanted to see it again. It had really long paragraphs and some stream of thought. I was, uh, I had, get this, I had polyuria and polydipsia. So I, everything I drank, I peed. I, if I drank more, I peed more. If I drank more, 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 I drank all the time and ate salt on my bananas, salt on my yogurt, salt everywhere. So I would retain it. I would still pee more. It was impossible. So what they did is they gave me a pick line. And so it's a, it's a peripherally uh, inserted central catheter. It's an IV that goes in your arm, uh, you know, in front of the elbow and goes, weeds all the way up into the right upper chamber of your heart to drip fluid in there. And in my first book, I made people listen to that humdrum and drip drop and go through all the battery changes. How much bag do I, how much flu do I have in there before I go to sleep? Because otherwise I'll wake up and the light will be clotted. Then there's no, it was, a, it was horrendous. You know, the weekends were the worst to get a clotted or an infected line and, as an anesthesiologist, you can imagine how how eerie it was to watch the drops go into myself when I should be watching them going into my operating room patients or my ICU patients. And then I wrote The Rebel Patient. I wrote two books, uh, children's books, a, a book on a woman, uh, a girl growing to a woman because I thought I would die and I wanted to leave that behind for my daughter. And, um, and then I wrote a, a guidebook to low back pain after I uh, assumed the medical clinic. Who took care of your daughter during this period? Uh, she had a nanny or sometimes if, a, if the, my caregiver consented to it, then my caregiver would also be a nanny. And I learned much later that, uh, for example, when I was in the hospital for a weekend, uh, one particular nanny who I'm very grateful for took her home for the weekend. You must be very close to your daughter after this experience. You know, she's, uh, we've been through a lot together and I do everything I can for her. And yeah, we have a really good relationship. So you didn't even have any swelling visible on your brain scans. No, the brain scans all came out negative. I had to go to Colorado for a very special brain scan that finally showed something. But I will say that uh, I went to the ER, particular ER repetitively, because nobody knew what the dysautonomia was. And at one point, I felt like I was going to die. One of the uh, ER docs at that time somehow thought of doing a spiral CT so it looked at the arterial system and the venous system in my brain. And that's when they found that I also had a vertebral artery dissection. So there was a rip in the artery on my left side um, that had formed a cut in the artery and it had my blood pressure had been high enough and my heart rate had been high enough that that eventually ballooned out into an aneurysm. So that left me with something called mal de debarquement syndrome, named after French sailors who got off of a ship and couldn't walk in a straight line. They walked like they were drunk. So it's like debarking off of a ship. So I basically could not walk across a room unless I went around the periphery or held onto furniture like a blind person. And if I stood up and closed my eyes, I felt like I was suspended in outer space. I had 
no grounding whatsoever. I didn't know where planet Earth was. I didn't have any orientation, no proprioception, nothing going from my feet up my spinal cord to my brain to, or, to, or my silhouette of my body to tell me where I was in space. And that caused me to have extremely severe migraines. I usually woke up and threw up. I threw up all day long and I was bouncing in and out of the ERs for migraines, vomiting the whole time as well. Well, just for the uh, listeners, um, there are four arteries that supply the brain. The two in the back are the vertebral arteries. They go through the um, the um, the uh, spine in, in places. And then the two in front of the carotids, which everyone's heard of. And she found that she had a concealed problem with the vertebral artery. And this created this imbalance that uh, made it so you could hardly walk. I assume you gradually, uh, you just gradually improved or was there a watershed moment at a year before your complete recovery that you just got better? Uh, that's a great question. You know, there's a, there's a, at that time, there wasn't that much even literature on the subject. So sometimes they would go in and try to repair it. Other times medically manage it with a blood thinner. Uh, similar to atrial fibrillation or some other clotting issue because the blood could go into that balloon area and, and uh, start to clot because the flow would be too low. So I was on blood thinners for probably three or four years. And then uh, actually I started getting better and better and better. I got so much better actually that Stanford accepted me to do a one-year buffer, you know, like a, 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 like a, uh, clinical fellowship that would re-expose me to my profession so that I could get my skills back. I woke up one morning and I couldn't walk in a straight line, <clears throat> which was scary for the vertebral artery part of it. So I went to the ER, got admitted and the, the worst thing happened. This is why I wrote the rebel patient book. The neurologist came in to examine me because I looked so young compared to everybody else in the cardiology ward with dysautonomia. Uh, I'm 62 right now, and people usually think I'm much younger and they underestimate me because of that, or they think I'm lying, I guess. I don't know why the doctors always thought I was lying. So this particular neurologist came in and he was examining me and he asked me during his exam to have me stand up and close my eyes uh, so that I could like touch my nose and you know do different things. And I said, if I do that, I'm going to fall. Like you need to know that I'm going to fall. And he looked at me all brassy, like, don't worry, I'll just catch you if you fall. <laughs> well, I closed my eyes. And the next thing I knew I was looking at his shoes and his feet were in the same exact spot that they he were. didn't catch you didn't catch me. So I sustained a second traumatic brain injury and that polyuria and polydipsia where I was thirsty, 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 peeing, peeing, peeing. I ended up with diabetes insipidus twice. The second time was his fault. Oh my God. Maybe my fault too for trusting him, but I trusted him. And I put that in the rebel patient book too. And I put a picture of how he was looking up, like with his hand on his shoulder, like, uh, like, like he even thought I was faking that. And I ended up going on uh, vasopressin or ADH, antidiuretic hormone, <clears throat> because that knocked out my posterior pituitary gland in the brain. It like hangs like an apple. It knocked out my ability to hold on to water. That is incompatible with life. 
And it got so bad. That's why I was on the pick line for three years. It went undiagnosed. They knew I needed water and I couldn't drink enough, but I didn't know why. So here I finally told them to test me for it and they did and I had it. But I'll tell you, being on an injectable vasopressin drug to tell your body to absorb water, when I was in the hospital during that admission, oh, actually not that one, but further down the line, the nurse accidentally, it's like insulin, like the littlest, tiniest amount could be an overdose or an underdose, including the amount that's in the head of that needle. And the nurse gave me an overdose. Imagine getting waterlogged in five minutes. My eyes were bulging. My head was bulging. Everything was, I had the worst headache and they didn't want to do a thing about it. They wouldn't give me diuretics, nothing. I had to suffer for like three days after that. So pitfalls of being a patient, the things that could go wrong, all those things are in my rebel patient book. The second uh, revised edition is coming out uh, probably this summer. The revised edition of the No More Tears book is coming out. It's much more, both of these are much more clear, concise. There's a lot of images, a lot of inspiration, a lot of empowerment for patients and a lot of spirituality as well. Because had it not been for my relationship with God and my belief that he would heal me and that I was here for an ultimate purpose, I don't think that I would have been able to forge through as as much as I did with as much perseverance as I had. We're, we're incredibly resilient. And this is what I pray about these COVID shots is that, uh, you know, my kids and all the other uh, people who ended up taking them will have a chance to heal themselves. And so we don't know how bad it's going to be. And there are still people who are compromised, who are, are dying of a shot they got a year ago. Um, but I'm, I'm hoping that the young, healthy ones will do fine. And I'm hoping that um, there won't be another wave of uh, supposed therapy like this that uh, uh, damages everyone worse. And uh, and your your story is is very heartening. It's a it's a inspirational, and it's just amazing how long it can take to uh, uh, overcome this stuff uh, physically. And how many years ago was it that you were at the end of this process and you were just coming out of the woods? That occurred in the brain the car accident was in 2005 the brain injury was completely resolved the second time in 2017 2018 so i was able to have an active medical license in 2018 and so uh you know that it's, it's been a long hard role and and the thing I would like to say to people that have a vaccine injury is that I know it can be extremely frustrating to get a basket diagnosis, especially like long COVID, but they don't really treat you for dysautonomia or anything specific. They don't, they just send you home, right? Like, like it was with COVID, like, yeah, just tell me if you get worse. Uh, so as far as the spirituality aspect of it, God I, I held on to God and Christ on earth, being able to heal a blind man to make him see. If God can make a blind man see, that's neurologic tissue. We know that the optic nerve goes straight to the brain. Uh, it has an incredible function of vision. You don't need a diagnosis from a doctor to get healed. You All you need is God's power to overcome everything. And that may take time for me. Even though I had that near-death experience and was promised 
that I could come back and watch my daughter grow up. I laid in bed, looking at the ceiling, fighting for my life every day for 12 years. 2018, that's pretty recent. I mean, you're doing so well. And uh, I, you know, we've, I've had similar experiences with medical personnel and I emphasize over and over uh, that people need to take responsibility for itself, for themselves and, uh, and do their own research. And, and a lot of times they have to tell the doctors what to do or correct the doctors or change course or better yet, sometimes get another doctor uh, because you can get a virtual consultation at the drop of a hat these days. It's been legal um, to operate virtually in the United States as physicians uh, ever since Trump, Trump made a uh, uh, proclamation or whatever they say um, when he was president. So, uh, so that's, that's a, it's a wonderful story. And I'm, I guess I'm going to go to the, uh, uh, what my listeners might be the most interested in. And that is your experience during the COVID for treating patients, your ideas about what the best, uh, um, post-vaccine injury treatment is. And of course, the vaccine injuries are have been characterized as COVID injuries to scare people and to damage them even further psychologically, and that's that's all been a pack of lies. I mean, they're they're virtually all vaccine injuries. COVID treated properly is a nothing burger, as we say here in Pasadena, <laughs> you know, the home of uh, In and Out Burger. We call it a nothing burger. So uh, uh, jump into that if you would be kind enough to do it, sure. and I'll listen. Sure. Uh, you know, and I think you're absolutely right on the first part. You have to be a rebel when you know that there's something wrong with you and the doctors aren't satisfying that instinct that God gave us, that there's still something wrong with you and there's something else that needs to be found. You need to take that to heart. You need to join groups of other people that have the same symptoms. Read everything you can about it. Be your own advocate. Research it and, and try to learn the language so that when you go to a doctor, you have specific things in mind. So one of the things, whether you're vaccine injured and they're giving you something or not, and we'll talk about all the alternative things that are out there that are helping many people. Number one, you need to know how a doctor thinks. Number two, before you go to an appointment, you need to know in your head what you want when you walk out. And it shouldn't just be a prescription. We're all locked into that right? Thinking that if I go to the doctor, I should get a prescription and a magic pill is going to make something go away. That could definitely be the case for me and dysautonomia. That was mid-adrenal. It made my blood pressure go up. But for a lot of things, it may be a consultation to somebody else who knows more because this doctor doesn't know. And yes, in your head, if and, and you have to be super careful too, during the appointment, you don't want to be a complicated patient. You don't want to exsanguinate the doctor's energy so that they really don't want to spend time talking to you the next time. Cause I have 20 more patients to see after your seven minutes are up. If the doctor asks you a yes or no question, say nothing, but yes or no, because they're starting with the algorithm up here. Yes or no goes this way. And then they're going to ask you another question. Yes or no goes this way. And then they're going to ask you another question. Same thing to infinity until you get to your diagnosis. And if you're up stuck up here telling stories about what happened and this and that and using your doctor as their psychologist, you're not going to ever get to the diagnosis. So in my rebel patient book, I go through that, what a soap note is, how a doctor thinks, when to fire your doctor in your head while you're talking to him or her and 26 doctors, 24 to 26 before I got my diagnosis of dysautonomia. 
So on the post-vaccine injury, I'm writing another book. It's a guidebook to spike protein detox. It's going to list everything from A to Z that could possibly help. So there's probably not one magic formula for everybody is, is one side of the equation. The other side of the equation is you're not everybody. You're you, and you have specific concerns, a specific history, and so what works for somebody may not work for you. Uh, there could be a magic bullet for you. you. That means you have to keep trying different things until you find either the combination or the one thing that works. So everything from ivermectin, which has helped neurologic injury and spasm and, and semi-paralysis, people unable to walk just to cut down the viral load and excrete it, uh, the spike protein out of your stool, to uh, supplements, of course, the vitamin Ds, uh, the vitamin C, the uh, quercetin, which acts like hydroxychloroquine, it's structurally similar, the zinc, because both of those are zinc ionophores and depend on zinc to go into a virus to stop it from multiplying, to I'd say I'd like to talk about the two newest things that uh, the doctor groups that I'm in are talking about, and they're uh, uh, both outside of the country, very bigly. One is in 80 countries already that nobody's ever heard of. And the other one is brand new just within the last month or so, the Italians have come up with a concoction. So the first one is called Clean Slate. Uh, the vaccines and multiple vaccines over time can deposit heavy metals in your system, especially if you've had multiple MRIs with gadolinium or other contrast, that metal is going to stay in your body. So I, I highly recommend a detox for everybody, whether it's a, a, a potion-like thing with a shaker bottle and a diet change like uh, Metagenics has a liver detox formulation. It'll bring uh, metals and molds and other leftover things all over your body and present them to the liver. Then stage two, it allows the liver to chelate and metabolize them and, and ID them as toxic, ready for excretion. And then number three, it assists your body in eliminating the toxins through your stool, your sweat, and your urine. So that's, that's a, a diet is number one and detox is number one. The particular uh, product on Metagenics is Clear Change. There's a simpler formula that's in a bottle called Clean Slate. It is from the root brands. That one is a zeolite solution made by lava hitting seawater. So it's got a honeycomb structure with a negative charge that attracts all the metals to go into that and bind it and then excrete it. So there's been a lot of really good other maladies like psoriatic arthritis, painful, extreme conditions that have also cleared up as a result of a zeolite solution. And then the second product that is brand spanking new out of Italy is an augmented NAC or N-acetylcysteine as a supplement, right? They try, the FDA tried to take it off Amazon, et cetera. Um, that one... They used quantum methods to uh, hyperactivate the NIC capsule. And it has been shown in their own studies to uh, versus regular NAC, which can denature or uh, crumble up a spike protein into parts. So it's inactivated 12% with regular NAC. And then with the augmented NAC, 
they show data uh, where it's 99% denatured. So you can, seems like you can eliminate much of the spike protein in your body that way. So I highly recommend if you're suffering from multiple chronic, vague, horrific symptoms that leave you unable to do the activities of daily life that everybody else around you is doing to try a, a detox first and then uh, go along with uh, a, trying a lot of different things like uh, Clean Slate or the Augmented NAC. And then my book is gonna have, is A, a to Z. It's gonna have uh, pine needle, dandelion root, all kinds of native remedies because now I don't have my medical license anymore. I've switched out to uh, become a research physician and a certified tribal practitioner. So we know there are a lot of natural remedies out there that the Native American indigenous Indians and other tribes and the Chinese have used for centuries. So we're bringing that more into the fore. So, so the, the first thing you mentioned is almost like an oral chelator right? Traditionally, yeah. chelation has been given intravenously and it works quite well for heavy metals. It can, uh, you can get rid of uh, mercury and zinc and a lot of other things using this and it's uh, accepted. And the second is more like, uh, well, explain a little bit about NAC, N-acetylcysteine. That's a harmless supplement that you can get anywhere. And uh, this is a long acting kind or something. What is it? Yeah, it's, it's they've used quantum uh, methods to augment its ability to have better bioavailability in your body so that it is its effects are multiplied with lower doses. So N-acetylcysteine or NAC is a glutathione donor. Glutathione is the most potent antioxidant known uh, to man. So it's going to stop free radical formation, inflammation, a whole list of things that are caused by multiple chronic illnesses. And uh, so they've, uh, and there are other people that are applying quantum frequencies to different things, right? They're spooky too. It's like 63,000 people, scientists on Facebook. There's a machine you can buy. Like if you sing at a high voice, a woman soprano can break a glass. You can use the same frequency theories to kill a bacteria, say. So I'm not saying that they applied an actual frequency with the augmented NAC, but that's a way to think about it. This is quantum physics. It is a new method. And instead of taking 1200 milligrams of over-the-counter NAC to 2000 milligrams, you take 200 because you don't need as much because they found a way to make it work better at a much lower dose. So you take NAC yourself? I have to, I have to order that one still. It's so brand new and it comes from Italy, but I'm in the doctor groups that have it. I have a, uh, my website at arantamdenterprises.com has a drop down for it. And, uh, I'm in the process of getting it shipped. So let's, let's I'm healthy. You know, I'm <laughs> oh, healthy. you look great. I don't really, I don't really feel that I need to take a lot, but trust me when I say I have a lot of, uh, I have a supply of supplements around me 24 seven uh, because anything could happen. Everybody's bracing for the next thing. And uh, I don't want to be caught without. I bought a three pound uh, jar of vitamin C uh, powdered. And the trouble is you take too much of that and you get diarrhea. 
and then I bought right. the li- lipolized. Is it is that what it is? Lipolized vitamin C, which doesn't uh, cause problems and is about three times as strong per gram. Um, okay. So uh, we'll hopefully be able to supply links to all this stuff in the show notes. Um, you you have so many things I want to talk about. I I, I can't resist uh, asking some other. Uh, but quickly first, um, did you get a publishers for your books or how did you publish them on Amazon? Right. Um, yeah, I have uh, my guidebook to low back pain was self-published without a publisher on Amazon. And then I have uh, my two children's books, little Missy two shoes likes a ladybug for a ladybug party for toddlers. And then little Missy two shoes likes to go to school so that toddlers don't have tantrums when they go back to school. So those are both on Amazon. The two children's books were published in a sort of a, a model uh, of uh, self-publishing with mainspring books where I did a lot of the work and then they fixed it up and did their magic wand on it to make it show up. So the rest of my books will be coming out uh, with mainspring books and they'll all be available on Amazon. Good, good for you. Um, you know, I'm going to have to hook you up with the uh, Amazon ads contractor I use. I don't know whether I've told you about him, but he he keeps my books selling. Now, I don't make any money on them. I pretty much give him all the money. But but it's it's a it's a, a passion project. And of course, I think it's important. So, uh, you know, we're trying to we're trying to get the word out. And Amazon censored my uh, fourth book, um, which is Cassandra's memo. Uh, it, it was a description of everything that had happened in the last um, 24 months. And they're, uh, it's still available on Barnes and Noble though, because they don't, they, they're not organized enough to censor. They probably would if they could. Uh, so that it, in hardcover and I offer them free for my listeners through a down, uh, the ebook free through a download site. Uh, and I put that on all my posts. So, uh, so tell the story. Now we're getting into the, <laughs> the juicy stuff, the nitty gritty, <laughs> tell the story of your experiences, uh, uh, just a little flesh out a little bit more that your experiences treating COVID on that 2,400 patients or whatever it was, uh, did you do virtual consultations and how did the uh, medical board uh, get onto you and what were their claims and what was, what was the uh, uh, whole process like we share this. Um, yeah. because of course I, uh, um, resign my medical license and they want you to say surrendered to make it sound as bad as possible. But I resigned my medical license and told them not to contact me ever again. And I, I pretty much ghosted them. And, uh, and so that, that worked. Um, you know, I didn't pay my renewal fees. Uh, I owed them $5,000 for part of my probation. And I ignored that and they never, they never pursued that and you know once you once you give it the give up the whole thing they have no more power over you so and it it permitted me i'm a little bit older that permitted me to go ahead and write full time and you're you're going to have a wonderful career i'm sure i mean you're you're so creative and so um you know you've got a lot of resources so i'm sure you're going to have a lot of fun i you know but before we go into this just tell a little bit about your uh how you got those people off of the uh pain drugs. Now I'm aware that pill mills were the first pain clinics and then they evolved into places like you where the good ones gradually tapered their, uh, their patients off the opioids. And you probably are aware that the number one cause of death now under 50 is opioid overdose in America. It used to be accidents. 
Uh, and that probably includes murder and homicide and car accidents and everything. But now it's opioid overdose and it hasn't gotten better as we've gotten aware of these companies and so on. So sorry about interjecting myself in your podcast, but go ahead. Blast it. Blast that's okay. That. No, that's a very, yeah. very valid subject. It's a huge, entirely, you know, riveting subject for many patients who suffer chronic pain, especially those who are in palliative care in with conditions that will never get better. And they're suicidal without something for pain like CRPS, chronic regional pain syndrome, or RSD, a reflex sympathetic dystrophy. It's known as the suicide disease where the legs turn into tree trunks or an arm. It, it just turns red and hard as a, as a tree trunk. It's obviously very painful. So somebody has to do something for some of these patients. And I had a collection of them from a previous clinic. So what did I do to help them get off? I experimented on them with their permission. For example, I, I didn't know half the medications that they were on because the, the former uh, physician was Dr. Forrest Tennant. He's got a master's in public health. He was there for, uh, you know, uh, Elvis Presley's autopsy and uh, very highly regarded and respected. Um, he had them on a lot of medications. So for a month to three months, I didn't change anything on anybody. I just kept them what on what they were on because I was so newly back to medicine, I didn't want to kill them. So I knew if I just did that, I would be safe and everybody would be safe. And I told them to start saving, et cetera. And then I started using my own experience at Stanford Pain Clinic, especially, and with the veterans who also had suffered a lot of pain. And I started experimenting by adding particular drugs. I widened the reach of labs that he had used, which included a lot of endocrinology. So I tested for viruses and uh, lupus and all kinds of different things, Lyme disease. Lyme disease. Uh, and he did that too. Yeah. Lyme disease was a big one. And uh, so the first medication that I tried, everybody went on it at the same time, which was pretty nice, was clonidine. And so that I learned later because I started at the lowest dose, but that was too high for some people. And one gentleman fell and broke his nose and sent me a picture of his broken nose bleeding and everything. I felt really bad, but they were so sweet and he was so kind. And, and the whole clinic was, was really tuned in to my wanting to help them with a polypharmacy approach that could cut inflammations. That is a alpha two uh, antagonist. So it stops the pain signal from going from the spinal cord to the brain. Uh, patients with chronic pain have different PET scans of their brain there. It changes the brain. It depresses it and activates areas that shouldn't be activated. So something like clonidine uh, can actually uh, and now we have low level light therapy patches that do the same thing that stop the pain signal from going from the legs to the spinal cord so that the second uh, neuron from the spinal cord to the brain never even gets activated. So the brain just stops feeling the pain. So that's what I did is I, I tried one thing after another steroids, uh, you know, hormone replacement with uh, continuing with that, that Dr. Tennant had done. And so I came up with a protocol and that's why I wrote the guidebook to low back pain, which I think actually helped the medical board target me some more because here I'm not board certified in pain management, even though my ex-husband was the president of a very prestigious uh, organization or two as an anesthesiologist as well. And we traveled all over the world and I wrote papers with him. So I didn't have that board certification, but I certainly knew a lot and saw a lot. 
You were so, too late to take those boards, weren't you? Anesthesiologists are allowed to take those boards without any addition, additional training, aren't they? No, you they need were an extra at one time. year. You need an extra year. I, I think up yeah. until a certain point, they were allowed to just take the boards. Yeah, but I, I think you came uh, out of the fog in 2018. That was after the grandfather thing. It, there was sorry. a yeah, yeah, there was a pain fellowship program when I was a fellow at Stanford in critical care. So it was older than that. Yeah. yeah, like 1997 or so there was, a, or I believe there was already a pain fellowship. So, so that was how I did that. And I, I just want to comment on what you were saying earlier about writing books. Like none of us seem to write books to make a lot of money. I think there's a few people that make a lot of money writing books. Writing a book is an extremely prolonged process, right? With edits, re-edits, this, that, the other thing. It could take a year to write a book. Uh but there I, took very, th I took three years for Butcher. There you go. There you go. See, I was being conservative. Did you did you get professional editors? No, I was always really yeah, good. I, I thought your prose was excellent. I had a look at it, and I'm a total poindexter about that. <laughs> Thank you. Like I write my own substacks. I have the rebelpatient.substack.com. People think I have a team. No, it's just me. There's nobody else. Yeah, no, I, I edit my own, I write my own writings and I edit them myself as well. I pick my own pictures. I make my own memes. I do everything myself. But let's uh, talk about what happened with the medical board. Uh, but I'll, I'll say one last thing about the pain patients. So this is really super important. The opioid crisis that's been in our country is not an opioid crisis of doctors and patients in an exam room writing opioid prescriptions. It is an illicit fentanyl crisis from China and Mexico, where they're lacing it with uh, illicit drugs or even teenagers or dollar bills. Like don't even pick up a dollar bill at the gas station. There was a report of somebody who got laced fentanyl on a dollar bill floating around at a gas station. She picked it up and went into respiratory failure. And people around her had to call 911. Somebody knew how to uh, do CPR. So you have to be careful, you know, about that. But I, I just want to clarify that because I actually think that ties in with COVID. They started uh, to eliminate the use of opioids in our veterans first, way back in the, you know, 2015s and earlier. Uh, and they were actually showing up at the VAs when they were closed, going to the emergency room and shooting themselves in the head to protest how much pain they were in because their VA pharmacies refused to fill and their physicians refused to prescribe. Then they took that template and they applied it to the general population where they stopped having pharmacies, the mainstream pharmacies, fill prescriptions for opioids if you could even get a doctor to write for it in the first place. Most doctors don't want a DEA license. They let it expire. They, they just say, oh, sorry, I don't have a DEA license. Can't do that. Send you to a pain clinic. And uh, so the pain patients, I think, were practice for the COVID patients because here the government had main pharmacies, didn't matter how much you yelled at them, they refused to fill. Didn't matter what you wrote, they refused to fill. And that was a stone wall to America. When COVID came around, they would not fill ivermectin, they would not fill hydroxychloroquine. Fortunately, most of them didn't know that doxycycline, the antibiotic acts like hydroxychloroquine. That's what they gave in India and in Uttar Pradesh for five days, 100 milligrams twice a day simple, cheap antibiotic together with three doses of ivermectin and zinc. And that cured that cured millions of people living in close quarters. So I would prescribe to the regular pharmacy 
doxycycline and make sure they took zinc also. And, you know, a couple of the, all the supplements, but in desperation cases, when I screamed at a lot of pharmacists, accusing them of killing my patients and they, for the first time in our country, doctors and pharmacists were quoting the CDC on anything on not prescribing and not using ivermectin and Okay, so here's my question. When has any pre-med student, medical student, resident, intern, fellow, nursing student, pharmacy student ever been asked one question in training or on a medical board exam about what the CDC ever said about anything ever? Not once, zero times. We don't care what the CDC says. It's owned by Big Pharma. It's funded by Big Pharma. RFK Jr. just came out with that big conclusion. So they're not a scientific body. They have a, uh, they're not objective. They have their own reasons for saying what they want to say. So with that said, uh, you know, with COVID and, and post-vaccine injury, I like to start with the usual uh, the ivermectin, the hydroxychloroquine, maybe some doxycycline, just to decrease uh, any viral particles and zinc, vitamin D, vitamin C, uh, quercetin, and melatonin. In my guidebook to low back pain, I have an entire chapter devoted to melatonin, which you take at dusk, not at bedtime. And you take a high quality supplement so that you don't get a hangover effect the next day and it's not too high of a dose so you don't get hallucinations or bad dreams. But your brain normally secretes melatonin at sunset because that's part of your circadian rhythm, your day and night cycle. So of course, it would something has to change when the sun goes down and that's your melatonin. So you always wanna take it at dusk, number one. And number two, I have pictures of some studies showing that if you uh, grow a, a corn in a melatonin base, uh, so a little spike of melatonin in it, it's, it acts like a growth hormone. So melatonin is actually in plants. It strengthens them so that they can withstand storms. And, and it, you can't even get melatonin as a supplement in other countries. So I like that that has been on a lot of protocols and I emphasize it and reemphasize it. That's one of the other medications that I started on all my pain patients as well because none of them were sleeping and uh, sleep is number one. Diet is, is very high up there as well. Did you lose, so, use long acting melatonin and what was the dose? A uh, three milligram dose. Uh, uh, the Medig I like the Metagenics company. We have to be real careful about supplements in our country because just because it says there's melatonin on the bottle doesn't mean it's actually inside the supplement that's in a pill. Some of them have nothing in it, but a lot of fillers, they lie on the label. So I like the Metagenics brand. Their blend is called Benesum, and I'll give you a link for that. Uh, my website there is margaretaranda.metagenics.com. And they put a little magnesium in there, a little calcium as well, so that it helps your muscles relax and it's good for heart and muscle health. So it kind of maintains all that. And they have found that that blend, even with a low dose of three milligrams, is, is a really good blend. And my patients love it so much and so do other patients apparently uh, because every so often it's out of stock 
So I recommend for people to just, you know, if you, if you order one bottle, you'll probably forget to go back and order it again. But if you just start off by doing the monthly shipments, you get something like 5% off and then, and then you're, you feel more obligated to actually keep taking it. But that I think is one of the easiest things for most people to do. And it's, it, but it's super important to have a high quality supplement so that number one, you're getting the real thing. And number two, you're not getting a lot of additives that are not helpful. So I like that idea as well. So um, go into your, uh, you know, how the whole thing developed with all your patients and how the medical board got after you. So uh, I'll, I'll be just a little bit careful because I'm waiting for an official acceptance of my surrender. I'm not sure how long it took them to get back to you when you, uh, you know. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to even talk to them. Just ghost them. That's okay. that, that works. But, um, you know, I did. They they eventually sent me something which my lawyer told me to sign. I was just going to ignore that and, and see what happened. But, uh, you know, I don't know what they can say if you write them a, a certified letter that says that you resign your medical license. You know, and I, I'm exactly. not, I'm not, I want you to go into the reasons why you decided to do that instead of fighting it. I was 65. So I thought, you know, if I have any brains about me and my wife had been urging me to quit for two years, she was a lot smarter than I am about it. Uh, but, um, <laughs> but anyway, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> it's funny how that is, right? Yeah. People that also love us, they see what we go through too. So, so I think that uh, I had started to receive complaints just prior to COVID, maybe like one or two pain patients, as, as you know, they all have a pain agreement. So if I find ketamine in their urine or methamphetamine, I'm allowed to say, sorry, you fired yourself. You're out of my clinic. Well, a lot of them obviously didn't like weren't it. very happy about that. Right. And I get it. Uh, but that's not my fault. You do that to yourself, but I'm just the messenger really. So I uh, had a group of disgruntled patients. I had a disgruntled former employee who I think had access to them, especially on Facebook messaging. And uh, she struck up a group of people to go after me uh, with the intent to put me in prison reportedly. Oh. So I got, uh, then when, uh, COVID hit, of course, people couldn't go to a lab for anything. They couldn't see their cardiologist. They couldn't go for this, that, and the other things. So I would be very careful to document. I'm just doing this because nobody else will. Patients instructed to make an appointment with our cardiologist. Uh, month after month went by. She still didn't do it. So I said, 30 days and I'm done. And I got, it was like, I was damned if I did and damned if I didn't, if I prescribed not enough pain medication, too much pain medication, no cardiology medications out of compassion versus prescribing out of compassion without labs if necessary, just based on what they've been on for years. Uh, everything I did was wrong as far as a, a group of people were concerned. So I started getting more and more there, complaints. There are, exact, there are exact parallels with cosmetic surgery patients. <laughs> right. Hey, most of them like, are great, um, sorry. But a few yeah, of them you, drive you crazy. You Go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. It's frustrating. It's frustrating. Like I didn't go into medicine to Be not follow the 
Yeah. Right. And I need to have, I need to know I'm doing the right thing. And so that was important to me. So the complaints were, and then I, I started prescribing ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine. I wrote a letter of exemption for vaccines. I got complaints about that. So those went to the medical board as well. Curiously, uh, they uh, held an interview with me and they just mentioned those without asking me any questions about them, but focused on, uh, I had two binders, this thick of paper charts on one patient who complained, left my practice, came back, had another, had been with me for a long time to generate the second big chart after maybe two hours just on that one patient and five hours plus on all the complaints that they brought towards me. They find out patient's not even mad. She be, I, she became my patient again. I forgave her for her outbursts, <laughs> and I treated her. And boom, they still want to take me to task for that. Like I knew when I inherited the clinic, they could take my license away any day because I was overprescribing compared to everybody else because nobody was prescribing. It's all relative. So the thing that I think really triggered the the focus was September 30th, 2022, when Bill AB 2098 was before Governor Newsom to either sign, veto, or kick back. And so I organized a group of 15 to 20 uh, doctors, lawyers, activists, including then a child activist, uh, Max Bonilla, to go and do a press conference on the steps of the Capitol building in Sacramento. It was a wonderful day, I have to say. It was very spiritual. I prayed before and after. A lot of people talked about answering to God and not to man. The government doesn't belong in the room with the patient and the doctor. This is part of the Hippocratic Oath. This is the basis of our medical freedom. And there were 20 people in the audience, uh, uh, PPRM, the, the patients and physicians uh, for uh, medical freedom, uh, was a group that came to that as well. Carolina Bonita came as well and helped market it and, and uh, organize it with you know people that were filming it and recording it, et cetera, and spreading the news. And it was it was it was something that nobody else would have done anything had it not been for us being there on that day. There was nothing else said from any group anywhere in California, but us going till almost five o'clock, the last day, the last time. And then of course, at the end of the day, Newsom wrote a letter and he signed it into law. And I, I just wanna pause for a moment. We have a clip of a video where Governor Newsom is standing behind his podium talking about Florida, taking medical freedom away from patients in Florida, censoring what doctors can say to their patients, calling it a Salem witch hunt for doctors. And at the end of this video, Governor Newsom points his finger with the American flag in the background at his big podium with his mic there saying, if they can come after your doctor, they can come after you. He knew exactly what he was doing. And this is why he's being primed to be president too, I believe, uh, because he's just trying to get away with as much as he can, counting on the apathy of the American public uh, or they're being scared to say anything 
uh, so that he can bulldoze government overreach into everyday life. So September 30th, 2022, 10 days later, uh, I received my first request to surrender my license. And it was perpetual from then on, one thing or another, more complaints, more complaints, more surrender. Then this is what happened that made me tip over to go ahead and actually surrender my license. I was away out of state. Two investigators went to my former office, supposedly to deliver papers. Then they went to my home. I had already sold my home. So they didn't know that. They asked the realtor to provide my change of address information. And she said, no, she wasn't free to do that. Wasn't part of her job. They could wait till the papers were filed. It would be public record. Then they came to my house, which was on the change of address. And they left an envelope with just my name and address on it. Not even a return. It was just handwritten. It was very unprofessional under my front mat that contained a demand for me to release the charts of three patients. And inside there was uh, three different pieces of paper, one with each name of each patient on it, saying that giving them uh, a, a chance to object to me providing their medical records by notarizing this document, and they were all blank. Nothing was notarized. so. So yeah, without nobody... that signature, you don't have to do anything. And I, well, you know, I've been advised of that several times. They have to get the patients to sign for the chart. But it's a double negative. It's it's not what you think. It's not permission to sign. It's permission. It's not permission to provide the information. They were trying to make the patients notarize a document. I, I know. Did did you have a lawyer representing you? It. Did you have a lawyer representing you? No, I don't have a lawyer representing me. Well, you, you have I, to always have a lawyer with the medical board because they don't pay any attention to, they, they're absolutely arbitrary. And there is a process and you could have continued to fight, but there is certainly an argument for quitting after all that. Well, I had a lawyer for the first, you know, up Here. until a certain point, I spent $40,000 and I didn't want to spend any more. I could see that's money that just goes and goes and goes and it doesn't come back. The and real parasites. Yeah, as much as I have a give, send, go, honestly, uh, Dr. Kirk Moore, who gave saline injections instead of COVID vaccines and helped thousands of patients not suffer and die and get myocarditis as teenagers, he says the same thing. Like maybe three of his former patients have donated to his give, send, go. Uh, our patients, I don't know why, but they really, it, it takes outsiders to contribute. Uh, to help the cause. But yeah, I wasn't willing to spend uh, tens of thousands of additional dollars. I'm 62, like I said, and I, I've had enough. But the, the minute they wanted for me to produce patient charts or surrender my license, it was an easy decision because uh, I'd rather surrender my license than provide patient charts with no complaint, no harm, and no permission. And that should that should make everybody's feathers get ruffled. Yeah, you got to, ideally, you find a lawyer that does what you want, and you could have gotten someone to write. Anyway, it's all water under the bridge now. It's it's great to it's great to retire and do something new. Tell us more about your uh, current career and the prospects you have and what you're up to. I've, uh, I, I'm on with two different programs. One is the Crow Tribe, uh, a Native Indigenous uh, Indian Nation. 
as a certified tribal practitioner that allows me to be a healer in all 50 states. Uh, I maintain that and a research practice as a research uh, investigating physician where I write my own protocols and essentially do all the COVID, post-vaccine. Uh, I do a little pain management. I do a little weight loss as well, um, where I can uh, go ahead and continue as a healer, both in all 50 states. And I, I don't, I, I'll let the audience know, I'm sure you already know this, all of us physicians who were required or ended up surrendering our licenses have now restructured a healing practice through a PMA or a private membership association uh, association. It's an agreement between say me and you uh, that is outside of government reach. It's completely private. There's no medical records that are electronic. There are no electronic prescriptions. The, Everything is protected by treaties that HHS has with the indigenous uh, native Indians. So, so it's protected, it's different that way, but we also have uh, open, it opens the door to other remedies that like we said, were ancient uh, remedies that the Indians, the Chinese and, and other people use. There are uh, provisions uh, to acquire uh, remedies through through these organizations. And so I think it uh, offers a, a wide array of options for people to receive regular prescription medications plus uh, natural remedies as well. And you, you can operate virtually. That's right. I'm 100% virtual. I, I do make house calls if needed, especially for uh, you know, people that are more invalid and can't get out, but yes, and it's all 50 states and any doctor, nurse, nurse practitioner, physician assistant uh, can, can operate in this fashion. And some people say that you don't even have to be an MD. You don't even have to, obviously the American Indian healers, the medicine men and the medicine women, they're not MDs. They never went to medical school. So there's a lot more flexibility. And obviously those of us that have chosen this path are very, uh, many of us are very spiritual. I have uh, my practice uh, with uh, uh, Aranda MD Enterprises PMA set up as a faith-based organization. I pray with my patients. I you know, believe in the healing power of God and the healing touch of God. And so uh, just like the Native American Indians are very spiritual it, it also with the, a lot of their uh, rituals that they have. So I'm learning more and more and, and happy to be a healer because they, that's they've set up, they've set up a pharmacy on the reservation that you can access and prescribe from uh, regular drugs like ivermectin. Is that correct? Or you would just refer to foreign sources? Yeah, no, that's not correct. And a lot of people think that. So I don't have to be American Indian. Nobody, no patient has to be American Indian and it is not on a reservation. So my the pharmacy, do you, you've my got a, access to a pharmacy that where you can yeah. prescribe. Well, God bless you, Miranda. That's just, yeah, I have a pharmacist and I have a pharmacist in New York that was shipped to all 50 states. Plus I'm allowed to get ivermectin from India or anywhere else in the country, in the world that I want. I'm allowed to get anything from anywhere that I want. Well, 
I'd say sign me up, but I'm, I'm so burnt out on regular medical interactions and I'm, I'm working 40 to 50 hours a week on the Substack thing. I hope I'm helping some people. I've got nine, 9,400 subscribers by now, but, uh, you know, I think you're doing more good. And, uh, you know, your, your, your ability to treat Lyme disease is probably pretty good too. So I, I think that you have a lot of takers. Lyme disease is ubiquitous. And ivermectin has helped Lyme disease quite a bit. I have some patients that have remained on it twice a day for Lyme disease. Well, we'll definitely uh, put all this stuff in the show notes and I think you'll get some um, customers or patients from it. And my, uh, I'm, I'm impressed by your bravery and your uh, service and your story is unmatched. It's just phenomenal. So I'm, I'm grateful for your interview. Tell me anything else you want to tell my listeners. Well, I, I just want to encourage people to realize that your health is I'd say 75% in your hands. A lot of people don't realize the importance of diet, of sleep, and just, you know, the basics like getting outside and having a little sunshine, talking to people that love you. Uh, They say that if you even watch somebody perform a kind act that releases serotonin and acts like an antidepressant. So I want to encourage people to think that not every problem that you have can be solved by a pill. God put us here to be around one another, to touch one another, to hug one another, to do kind deeds for one another. And we need to try to be an example of that by not reacting uh, in our natural with our natural instincts or having great offense or being easily offended, but by processing things that we would normally do, hesitating for a moment and instead responding in a loving way. I love that Dr. Rashid Buttar, who said he was poisoned by the CDC, I'm sorry, by uh, CNN by, uh, during his interview and, and died. I have a substack on his last interview, his last long video and his last short video. He's, he had a, he took a compound. It wasn't a magic mushroom. It wasn't marijuana. It was something else. He, it was a special formulation that 12 peep scientists around the world had gotten together to concoct. Uh, I don't know what that formula is. And he didn't say what it was, but he had a, a supernatural experience and felt apparently that God was inside of him, a two hour video I have linked on my sub stack at the rebel patient. He said that God wanted to tell him two things. One, uh, the biggest message was don't lose your free will. Don't feel like you get forced into doing anything. And the other one was there's love and fear. So every reaction that you have should be tempered with love and not fear. And that makes sense because God is love. He is light. He is truth. And if we could temper our reactions and our responses so that we respond not by giving back people what they give us or raising it up a notch, which I did all that in jail ward because that's my opinion, what it took to understand but, I, uh, I worked in jail ward for a couple months also during my. Did you? It's quite the yeah, place. The same <laughs> ward. Yeah. 
I was wondering why you mentioned why you mentioned that out of, out of all your postgraduate training experiences. It must have impressed you. It was impressive. It was. We were told on day one, sitting around a big table, if anybody gets a pen and holds it to our throat, we're in a lockdown. And we had to go through a 12-inch metal door with a sheriff station based right there to get in and out of there. And we felt every bit like we were in jail as much as everybody else was. We had people trying to kick and bite and spit on us to give us HIV. We had drunks, you know, uh, the tank big room full of 20 guys chained with hard, hard chains, our ankles and, 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 and wrists to the bed, vomiting on themselves all night. It was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I just tried to hide. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I don't remember it very well. That was a long time ago. I got the short stick twice. So I had to go there twice, <laughs> but you know, I learned a lot. I learned a lot and, and I, I know people I, I get, and I learned, I get along with everybody. If I don't get along with someone, it's because they have a problem with everybody else. But yeah, God gave us some survival instincts that I think got accentuated over there. But yeah, love and exercise your own free will. Don't think your healing is going to necessarily come from one pill and look up, look at God, ask God, look down, get on your knees, cry fast. Pray. Fasting helps uh, COVID and long COVID too. Uh, so it, whenever you raise your spirituality, you decrease your body and allow it to be minimized so that your healing and your miracles can happen. So my parting shot here is we have someone who was a member of the especially who uses the most medications. They use the medications every single day, every minute that they're working. And she's advocating less medications and natural medications instead of all those heavy drugs. So I, I'm tremendously grateful for your time in the, the inter interview. And we'll, um, we'll see if we can help your, uh, your presence a little bit. You, thank, thanks again. Thank you. My pleasure. God bless you.